You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have Alicia Ross, uh, author of End the Insomnia Struggle. So, Alicia, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, tell me about um, why write about insomnia. Is this something you personally struggled with, or is it just something you have an interest in? Yeah, no, I'm fortunate not to struggle with insomnia. I have more the other epidemic of not creating enough time for sleep. So I'm often sleep deprived, but not because of insomnia. But really, my interest grew um, a number of years ago when a psychiatrist in town who's board certified in sleep medicine approached myself and my co-author, Colleen Ernstrom, and said, hey, you guys do cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. I really need you to do that with my sleep disordered clients because I don't have anybody to refer them to. And we know that CBT is the best treatment for insomnia. And so we really dove into that work and I found it super gratifying um, because it is a treatment that can work so well in a relatively short amount of time. And people experience such a tremendous improvement in their quality of life. So it's just really gratifying work to do. So um, that's what really captured my interest once I started doing it. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that right? Right. Yep. So you know, for people that don't it. know what that is, what, what is it? What does it involve cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. So I'm going to speak specifically to what it involves with sleep because um, it, that does connect with CBT more generally, the way we use it for anxiety, depression. Um, but really what we mean when we talk about cognitive behavior therapy is looking at the interrelationship between the way we perceive things in terms of how we think about them, so our attitudes, our beliefs, our thoughts, um, what we feel, and what we do behaviorally. And when it comes specifically to sleep, we're also looking very closely at the physiological response. So if you think about somebody who's not getting adequate sleep, and then over time, night after night, if they're not getting good sleep, they might start having some certain thoughts like, oh no, what if I don't sleep well tonight? Or, oh my gosh, this is going to be a sleepless night. What am I going to do? And you can imagine if people are thinking that way, then that's going to trigger some physiological arousal, which is then going to actually make it harder to sleep. So that's the cognitive part. And then behaviorally, people start to really shift their behaviors in the face of not getting adequate sleep. They may spend a lot more time in bed um, so that maybe they're now in bed nine or ten hours, but only sleeping five or six, or they might 
consume more caffeine during the day in order to counter their sleepiness. They might scale back on social activities at night because they're worried that they're going to get too activated and not be able to sleep. They might stop exercising in the morning because they're too tired. So they engage in what we call these compensatory behaviors. And even though all those behaviors make sense, they actually can feed what we refer to as the insomnia spiral because then you're creating some physiological shifts that actually are counterproductive to sleep. So in CBT for insomnia, what we're doing is helping people to change their behaviors and sometimes change their attitudes, beliefs, their thoughts, so that they can get out of their body's own way and let their body do what it really instinctually knows how to do, which is to sleep. What's, what's I guess, a specific example? Someone... Uh... I guess has a life event and what they they have onset insomnia or do they wake up earlier than they want or you know what kind of insomnia is and what are the specifics of what you've seen people do wrong like what's an example case study yeah um so first to answer your question with insomnia so we can apply cbt to any kind of chronic insomnia meaning onset where they have trouble falling asleep or maintenance insomnia where they wake up multiple times or one prolonged awakening or um, that terminal insomnia where they wake too early and can't get back to sleep. So we can apply it to any of those. Um, And so an example would be that somebody is, say they are still going to bed at their normal time, but they wake up, I don't know, three hours later, they're up for a period of time, they get back to sleep, but after that it's restless sleep, and then they don't fall back into deeper sleep until about 5.30, And it used to be that their alarm would go off at 6 or 6.15, but now with this disrupted sleep, they're setting their alarm for 7.30, or maybe they're not setting the alarm at all. Maybe they've even asked for accommodations at work, or their spouse is covering getting the kids off to school. And so now they were going to bed at 10.30, and they were getting up, let's just say, at 6.30, but now they're getting up at 7.30 or 8.30 or 9.30. And you can see then that their sleep window has really expanded. And but they're not getting as much sleep as they used to. So they're taking more time to get less sleep. And what we know is that our sleep actually then does become less efficient. So the behavioral prescription would be something that we call sleep restriction therapy, where we're restricting their time in bed to the amount of time that they're currently sleeping. So if if that person is currently averaging six hours of sleep, I'm going to ask them to spend six hours in bed. And we're going to get very nuanced and specific about which six hours, based on a number of factors that are beyond the scope of our phone call today, um, but which six hours for that particular person, what are strategies they're going to use to stay awake until their designated bedtime, what are strategies they're going to use to get up at the designated wake time. And when we restrict their time in bed to those six hours, then what's likely to happen is they're going to start to get much more consolidated sleep. They're going to be in bed a lot less, so they might feel more tired before they feel more rested. But usually, they get more consolidated sleep. They start to feel hopeful that this is going to work. And then each week, we incrementally add a little bit more time in bed as long as they are sleeping most of the time. So we'll add 15 minutes roughly every seven days as long as they're sleeping 90% of the time that they're in bed. And then so by definition, if you have inefficient sleep, you probably have bad sleep, right? Um, well, that's an interesting question. But, but generally, I mean, because there are some people who talk about having more of a, 
um, you know, multi-phasic kind of sleep, having two different periods of sleep. So I'm not really talking about that, but we're talking about the people who think of themselves as having insomnia. And yeah, they're having inefficient sleep, so it's taking a lot of hours to not get restored. Even if they don't think of their sleep as all that bad, they're losing a lot of time to it, which means that their quality of life has gone down. And that's one of the number one things that people can really see a benefit and really, really quickly with this treatment is even before their sleep is better, they are giving up a lot less for sleep and they're getting back hours of their day where they can live their life more fully. When people have poor sleep, do they tend to go to bed earlier or they tend to wake up later or do they not have the option sometimes to wake up later? So they, I mean, what do they tend to do on average? It depends on the person. And I should say people don't do what I'm describing, spending more time in bed. They don't even bother going to bed because they don't expect to sleep. But um, some people will go to bed earlier. They'll retreat from their evening life, social engagements, family, whatever, because they're so exhausted and they just drop into bed even earlier, but then don't have good sleep. Maybe they have trouble falling asleep. Maybe they do fall asleep, but they have trouble staying asleep. Other people will sleep in later and some people do both. So, all right. So what's, um, again, besides the sleep or laying in bed time restriction, what other common therapies are that help people figure this out? Because, you know, sleep is very psychological. If you lay in bed and you think, oh, no, I hope I sleep, then it seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy if you worry, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the most difficult things about sleep is that the harder you try, the more elusive it is. So it's one of the few things in life where trying hard is counterproductive, right? Um, so that's one of the things I love also about the CBT is it's very much a multi-component treatment. There are a lot of different treatment components you can use. And I think it's really important to individualize it. And that's the approach we try to take in our workbook. Most workbooks are very much a one-size-fits-all. You should challenge your thoughts in this way, and then you should do this thing called sleep restriction therapy. You should also do this thing called stimulus control therapy and sleep hygiene. Um, what we find is that most people have a hard time doing the entire treatment package because they really don't need to do it all. And then it's putting, it's asking them to just do too much. And so I think it is important to recognize that there's a lot to do, but you don't have to do all of it. So to give you another example and answer your question more directly, um, when people are in bed and they're feeling anxious about sleep, now they're associating the bed with stress, the bed with anxiety, the bed with wakefulness, right? And so this other behavioral program called stimulus control therapy, you've probably heard reference to it, even if it wasn't called that, that's where you use your bed only for sleep and sex. And so you don't watch TV in bed, you don't read in bed, you don't have deep conversations or conflict with your bed partner in bed. You don't, you know, do your bills, surf the internet. You use your bed just for sleep. And so the idea there is you go to bed when you're sleepy. If at any time during the night, whether it's the beginning of the night or the middle or the end of the night, if you're in bed for roughly 20 minutes and you're not asleep, then you're going to get out of bed. Again, there are a lot of nuances here. I want to really individualize it with the person in terms of where in their house they go, what lighting they use, what activity they engage in. But generically, they're going to do something that's relatively boring or sleep-inducing or relaxing. And then they're going to get back in bed when they feel like they might be able to fall asleep. 
Um, and then if they don't fall asleep after 20 minutes, they're going to get up again. So you're trying to retrain the brain to associate the bed with sleep and to break the association between bed and stress or bed and other kinds of arousal. And you also want to break the association between sleep and other places. Because lots of times when clients come to me, they've gotten into a pattern. They leave their room and they're frustrated in the middle of the night and they go on the couch and they fall asleep there. And so, again, there's not this strong association between bed equals sleep, and we want to help them strengthen that. Um, some other strategies, you know, when you're talking about somebody having really anxious thoughts, and they can be about sleep, or it could be that they're anxious about other things in their life and that that's interfering with sleep. So we can also work directly with the thoughts. That's the cognitive part of the CBT. And we have a variety of strategies, sometimes we can help people challenge their thoughts since we tend to distort our thinking at least a little bit. And when we're sleep deprived, we might do it even more. So the person who's saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to be wrecked if I don't sleep tonight. You know, we can help them tone that down. Okay, I'm probably not going to feel as comfortable. I won't feel as sharp in my meeting tomorrow. But the truth is I've been able to function pretty darn well over the last eight months, even though I haven't been sleeping well. So we can help them kind of talk themselves off the cliff, if you will. But then we also have some other strategies that we like to weave in that come more from a different treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. And in ACT, it's more about helping people relate differently to their thoughts. So we might, for example, do some mindfulness training to help them be an observer of their thoughts, be able to recognize, oh, I'm laying here in bed and my mind is really active. And really what I want to be doing right now is winding down for sleep. So I don't really want to be engaged in such active thinking. Can I just notice that, let it go, and bring my attention instead to my breath or to the sensation of my body as it comes into contact with the mattress or to this relaxation exercise, whatever it may be. So variety of strategies, again, to work with the person's thoughts and their relationship to their thoughts. How long do people have insomnia before they come to see you? And then how long on average does it take to resolve? Great question. So um, lots of times people don't land in my office until they have struggled with insomnia for over a decade, sometimes over two. Sometimes they haven't Over a decade? That's crazy. Oh, yeah. I know. And sometimes they haven't done anything during that decade to address it. More often, they've actually done quite a bit. Maybe they've been taking sleeping pills for a long time. Maybe they've tried a lot of other things. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and so a lot of times people have tried more kind of non-conventional treatments first um, because it's a little bit of a hotbed for that. Um, so very often it's been many, many years. So when somebody comes in and they say that they've been having trouble for eight weeks or even eight months, they think it's been going on a really long time. And it has been in terms of their own suffering, so I don't want to minimize that. But it's a great opportunity for me to instill a lot of hope and say, What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, 
Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continu continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21 and a half AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit MetabolicHealthSummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Oh my gosh, you're catching this really early. I'm really optimistic because this treatment can actually help people when it's been ingrained for years and years. So um, when people do come in early, that's always you know, a really nice thing, but very often it's been many years that people have been struggling. In terms of how long it takes for the treatment to work, that's a really complicated answer, but I will say that the clinical trials that have evaluated CBT for insomnia and found it to be effective generally have used about a six-session protocol with those six sessions spread roughly between four and eight weeks, depending on the study. At that time, it's not that people will say that they have hit their ultimate goal and they're sleeping as much and feeling as rested as they want to be. But at that point, they are doing substantially better, maybe no longer meet criteria for insomnia, and they're headed in the right direction. In my own practice, it's highly variable. I've had people who benefit from just a single session. They have gotten really wrapped around the axle in terms of their sleep, they're really struggling. They're really working hard, and they're so upset about their sleep, and I go more for the ACT strategies of the acceptance piece and letting go of that struggle, and I might ask them to go to bed a lot later, you know, so kind of a little bit of that sleep restriction, but just a very minor piece, like one little suggestion, and sometimes that's all it takes. That's rare, but I've had that happen where it's like, oh, I can just let my sleep be whatever it is tonight and see what happens, and they relax so much physiologically that it really corrects things. Um, more often, people come in, they're really, really anxious. They're anxious enough that they aren't really willing to do the behavioral treatment that I know is going to work for them, and so it takes us a little time where I really have to do some psychoeducation. I need to work on their anxiety with those ACT strategies first, get them a little bit more confident, then they're ready to do the behavioral program, either stimulus control or sleep restriction. Um, and then once they start that, usually usually we know within two to four weeks, hey, we're headed in the right direction. Again, they're not necessarily at their ultimate goal, but they're feeling optimistic. They might feel like they 
are no longer giving up as much of their life to sleep, that they're more in control of their daytime functioning now instead of everything revolving around sleep. So their quality of life is better. Their sleep that they are getting is more consolidated. And now they're just working towards getting more of it. So but what kind of uh, symptoms go along with, uh, with, with poor sleep? Do people also, are they depressed? Are they, you know, what else goes along with insomnia? Yeah, so that's the other reason your question about the time frame for recovery is pretty complicated because when people come in with insomnia, they often do also meet criteria for an anxiety disorder or for depression, or maybe they have a really complicated history of complex trauma that they've experienced. If we stay focused on the sleep, they can improve with their sleep just as much as somebody who has insomnia without any of those other conditions. But sometimes they come in with so much going on that we don't stay focused on their sleep. We start to focus on some of the other things going on in their life. And then it can take a lot longer for their treatment or for their sleep to respond to treatment because we're not as focused on it. Um, And I think that that's one of the big disservices that the mental health and the medical community has done to folks with insomnia. If they also have anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder or any similar conditions, they'll say, well, this is all about your depression. We just need to treat your depression and you'll start sleeping better. And what we are starting to learn from the preliminary research trials is that you can take those folks who meet criteria for major depressive disorder, you can give them straight CBT for insomnia, and they will have the same kinds of dramatic improvements in their sleep. And when they're sleeping better, it will improve their mood. So as a field, we've only been looking at it in one direction. You know, anxiety or depression is causing disturbance. Therefore, we need to treat anxiety, depression, it'll resolve sleep. But if we can treat people's insomnia, then they're going to have an improved sense of well-being. It's going to be easier to regulate emotion. It's going to be easier to engage in the treatments for their depression or anxiety. But to step back a second to your other question about what other problems people have, lots of times people come in, they don't necessarily meet criteria for any other diagnosis, but they are really suffering the daytime consequences of chronic poor sleep. And so they may report that they're more forgetful or they're not um, as productive at work or at home or they feel less present with their family. Um, Sometimes they're really sleepy and they feel unsafe driving. Um, So there are a number of different things that can go along with the sleep, either as a consequence or as a trigger. Regardless of all of that, I still feel really passionately that we should be offering people this treatment of CBT for insomnia because we know it works. And they're likely to be able to handle all those other things better if they're sleeping better. That's true. If you have bad sleep, your whole day is a mess and everything goes to pot. If you sleep well, you know, you have a chance of having a good day. Well, yes and no. I want to be careful because there's this balance, right? Because if you're telling yourself that, well, if I have bad sleep, then my whole day is going to be trashed. Well, that's exactly the self-talk that can become the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And so I had a client the other day who was really able to articulate very well that she no longer woke up and evaluated, how did I sleep last night? Oh my gosh, what kind of day is it going to be? that she had learned instead to not assess it, to just wake up and start her day. And she would know by the end of the day what kind of day it was going to be instead of evaluating it in the beginning of the day. 
And when she did that, even though this was actually my initial appointment with the person, so she hadn't been doing the treatment yet. Um, so even though she was still sleeping really poorly, she was actually functioning a lot better during the day because she didn't have heaped on top of the sleep deprivation all this judgment about the sleep deprivation. So it took off a layer of the distress and the stress. And actually, even though it's not the best for us, most of us can function pretty well, even without enough sleep. And so I think it's also important for people to remember that they're more resilient than they might give themselves credit for. And if they don't freak out about it, they're likely to be more resilient still. And so we want to acknowledge that sleep is really important. We want people to be prioritizing it, creating enough space to get good sleep. We want them to be getting treatment if they have insomnia. But we also don't want to be holding the gun to their head saying, oh my gosh, you better get better sleep or your life is going to be wrecked. Right? So that's a hard balance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What about uh, sleep trackers, you know, Fitbit, Aura Ring, et cetera? Do you think they're helpful or they just contribute to people's like uh, your neurosis about sleeping well? Um, I think it's important when people have chronic insomnia that they track their sleep because it provides so much data that's going to help us individualize the treatment. It's also going to help us track whether they are being compliant with the treatment and track the outcome so we know when we should change course and when we should stay the course. So when people have chronic insomnia, I think they should definitely be tracking their sleep. I usually prefer our paper and pencil sleep blog that we have in the workbook and is on my website over the sleep trackers for specific reasons that have to do with collecting very specific variables that help us with the CBT prescription. For the general public, if they're just curious how they're sleeping, um, I have pretty mixed feelings about the trackers because they seem to be have pretty mixed reliability. So if you have one person wear one device on one wrist and a different device on their other wrist and have their smartphone with an sleep tracking app tucked where it's supposed to be under the mattress cover, those three different programs will give them three different sets of data. And you really don't know which one's most accurate. Um, so there's that issue. And then as you're saying, there can be some hypervigilance. And so I'd rather people really be judging, how do I feel during the day? Do I feel relatively rested? Do I have the energy and vigor that I want? Is my focus and concentration what I expect it to be? At the end of the day, when it's time to approach sleep, am I sleepy so I feel like I can fall asleep relatively easily? But does it take me a little bit of time? Because if you're falling asleep super quickly, you're probably sleep deprived. It should take a few minutes at least to wind down in bed, like 10 to 15, before you fall asleep. So if people don't actually have trouble with insomnia, then it may be better to not focus so much on how they're sleeping at night. Because they can also get sucked into this idea that everybody's the same and we all need the same amount of sleep. And, oh, my gosh, I'm only sleeping seven hours and 15 minutes. I feel great, but maybe that's a problem because I was told I need eight. Or, oh, my gosh, I sleep eight and a half hours. What's wrong with me? I'm lazy. I need to get that down to eight. Everybody's different in terms of how much sleep they actually need. And so if they're judging it more from the health effects and their quality of life during the day, they're going to be better off. But, again, if they have chronic insomnia and we're treating it, then I do want them to track it for the purposes of treatment. All right. Uh, last question for now. What, what kinds of insomnia are there and how are they treated differently or are they the same? You know, like I've heard that taking a long time to fall asleep is one, 
or waking up too early before the alarm and can't go back to sleep is another. And then middle of the night waking up and can't go back to sleep is a third. Right. So um, you're right on the one hand. Um, but we also know that it's not easy to categorize any one person across time. I so often have people come in saying that for years their insomnia was the difficulty falling asleep, what we call onset insomnia. Now they fall asleep fine, but they wake up in the middle of the night. So, and you get all sorts of patterns like that. So we found that that kind of categorization helps descriptively for any one point in time, what is somebody experiencing, but it doesn't really help guide treatment that much in terms of saying, okay, this insomniac is categorically different than this other insomniac. It's more like, oh, this is where they are in their insomnia right now, and it might stay the same or it might morph. The treatments I was referencing, the stimulus control and sleep restriction therapies, both can work with all three of those kinds of insomnia. One thing I will say is that when somebody only has trouble falling asleep, then I'm less likely to be thinking about a medical condition like sleep apnea that might be causing the insomnia. Whereas when somebody has middle of the night awakening, I'm going to do a much more thorough screen for that kind of medical condition because with sleep apnea, as I'm sure you know, you have these pauses in your breathing. That doesn't happen when you first go to bed and you're trying to fall asleep, but it does happen once you're asleep. So the profile of what somebody's insomnia looks like does matter in terms of our assessment, our workup, um, certainly the different uh, ways of problem solving. So if somebody has trouble falling asleep, then the stimulus control where you get out of bed, if you're not sleeping, might be a little bit easier for people than if it's 3 a.m. and the house is really dark and it's cold and everybody else in the house is asleep. We have to troubleshoot how are you going to get yourself out of bed differently. So the basic treatments are the same. It's just that we have to troubleshoot the roadblocks a little bit differently depending on when it is that they're having trouble sleeping, if that makes sense. Well, very good. So um, what's the best way for people to find out more and to get in contact and, uh, you know, get the book, get some more resources? Yes. Yeah, so the book is available everywhere, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, all that kind of stuff. It's called End the Insomnia Struggle. Um, And my website, which is Boulder, like the city, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, C-B-T, like the treatment, so boulderCBT.com, that's a good place to go. It's not a very rich website. It's pretty basic, but if there are practitioners listening who want to keep up to date on when I'm doing an all-day workshop or something like that, then that's where that information would be and probably the best way to track our work. Well, very good. Alicia, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. 
No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.